Well, Shortcut Bible College is back in session. We hope you'll get your Bible out tonight. We're in the midst of a study on God's covenants. And tonight we're going to probe into the Adamic covenant. Get your Bibles out and let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Hope you enjoyed your spaghetti and your Italian garlic bread and your dinner tonight. You've gotten yourself situated in the nice lazy boy and you're ready to study God's word this evening. Get your big old, hope you got a big old uh, 64 ounce of lemonade sitting there next to you. It won't be that long, but hope you got it and uh, we'll enjoy our Bible study this evening. Genesis chapter 3. Glenn Roberts got his nickname, Fireball, from his pitching prowess in American Legion baseball. But Fireball Roberts sadly lived up to his name in 1964 at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. It was one of NASCAR's worst crashes. The race had just begun. It was in the seventh lap. There were 393 more to go. The drivers were settling in, finding the rhythm. Roberts was a popular driver at the time. In the prime of his career, he was running in the middle of the pack. But as the stock cars moved through turn two, a collision occurred between Ned Jarrett and Junior Johnson. Glenn Roberts tried to avoid a pileup. His car spun out of control and slammed against the retaining wall. The impact punctured a hole in Glenn's gas tank. When the car rolled over, it burst into flames. It was the worst inferno that NASCAR had ever seen, probably has still ever seen. By the time that Glenn Roberts was pulled from his car, burns covered 80% of his body. Six weeks later, a 35-year-old Roberts died from complications. Today, Glenn Fireball Roberts rests in peace outside the Daytona International Speedway behind Turn 3. Major changes in the sport resulted from Glenn Roberts' death. Fire retardant safety suits became standard. Onboard extinguishing systems were upgraded. Rubber fuel cells replaced metal gas tanks. Following the crash, NASCAR implemented a whole new set of terms and stipulations. Post-crash NASCAR looked a lot different than pre-crash NASCAR. The sad demise of Fireball Roberts altered racing forever. And tonight, I want to talk to you about another crash in another race. Fireball Adam, we'll call him, spun out of control and went up in flames. And his crash permanently altered the human race. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And the re their rebellion subjected all of creation to death and decay. God created the first man from the dust. And it's to the dust that we return. Now when anybody anywhere is buried, it's a reminder of Fireball Adam's deadly crash. Now as I said last week, a NASCAR race intensifies in the turns of the track. Cars bunch up in the turns. Drivers jockey for position. A NASCAR race is won or lost 
in the turns. Last week, we compared the Bible to a stock car race. The starting line is the genesis of the heavens and the earth. And the first big turn is the creation of the man and the woman. God made them in his image, male and female, and plopped them down in a garden called Eden. God gave Adam dominion over all that he had created. Imagine, his first job was CEO. He co-ruled with God. Adam and Eve were the perfect couple, living in a perfect world, eating perfect fruit, enjoying a perfect relationship. Hey, this was the perfect gig. I mean, just imagine, Adam never had to hear about how much money Eve's daddy made. And Eve never had to hear about how good Adam's mom could cook. Both Adam and Eve lived together naked and unashamed. The first couple had nothing to hide, no hang-ups. They were so unselfish, they were oblivious to themselves. They were naked and didn't realize their nakedness. Adam and Eve had it made. And here's the kicker. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. God and Adam had this cool relationship. They took long walks together. They hung out together. Hey, this was the reason mankind was created. The Bible tells us that God is love. But love always needs an object to love. Thus, God created the man and the woman for fellowship. God wanted to love and be loved. He wanted to know and be known. He wanted to serve and be served. He wanted a real relationship. But here's what we learned last week. God doesn't just desire any old relationship with us. He always has a specific type of relationship in mind. He thinks through the arrangement that he wants with his people. This includes terms and conditions and promises. It sets out expectations and boundaries. God provides roles for those involved in the agreement. God desires a relationship with mankind, but it's always a certain kind of relationship. And the arrangement that God orders is called a covenant. Last week, we talked about God's initial covenant with mankind, the Edenic covenant. It was named after the garden that Adam and Eve called home. It was a basic, simple agreement between God and man. God created paradise. God gave paradise to Adam and Eve. God allowed them to enjoy and rule over paradise. All God asked in return was for the man and woman to love him. That's a reasonable request. And for love to be meaningful, it has to be voluntary. A love that's imposed or assumed is no love at all. Love has to choose. Love always has a choice. So God told Adam and Eve that they could eat of every tree in the garden except one. The lone tree with the forbidden fruit was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only tree that God made off limits to man. And man's restraint in the face of temptation. Man's obedience to God's prohibition. His faith in God's request was his way of saying to God, that he truly loved him. But guess what happens in the turns? Cars and people go crash. Fireball Adam crashed. 
He and his wife chose not to trust in God. They bit the forbidden fruit and they rolled the car and all of life went up in flames. You know, another tragedy occurred on April 26, 1986. The worst nuclear accident the world has ever seen took place in the Chernobyl region of the former Soviet Union. A fire in reactor number four released 190 tons of highly radioactive debris into the atmosphere. Today, 35 years later, the effects of the tragedy are still evident, particularly among the children who were born in the contamination zone. In fact, the children of Chernobyl have been a worldwide humanitarian concern now for years. Pictures of these children are heart-wrenching. Empty eye sockets. Bloated legs, club feet, misshaped heads, the loss of appendages, all sorts of painful physical deformities. Look at the aftermath of Chernobyl, and you realize that something went horribly wrong. This was not by design. This could not have been the plan. Radiation poisoning was the chief explanation. It's the only thing that made sense of the human wreckage of the warped and twisted bodies. And when you look at the world today, the pain, the heartache, the distortion, the perversion, you get the same impression that this was not the plan, that something terribly twisted has happened in our collective past. Without Genesis chapter 3, there would be no adequate explanation for what we see in the world today. Sin poisoned God's creation. Everyone afterwards now lives in the contamination zone. I've heard it put, Adam bombed. It was the first Adam bomb. And its fallout contaminated everything God created indeed. It's true. Our world is no longer what God meant for it to be. Life went haywire. We crashed. A wrench was thrown into the gears of life. And it's the Bible, particularly Genesis chapter 3, that provides its victims with an explanation. Well, the Genesis 3 is the biblical account of the fall of man, of Adam's crash, and how that one crash and burn changed the entire human race. It changed life on earth forever. After Glenn Roberts' disaster, NASCAR reorganized their sport. And likewise, after Adam's crash, God drew up a new covenant. Remember, God never gives up on a relationship with man. And his answer to our sin is always a covenant. What comes to our rescue is a loving and grace-filled and faith-based covenant. And Adam is no exception. Let's turn tonight to Genesis 3 and look at the Adamic covenant. We'll recap the initial sin and then spend some time probing this covenant's far-reaching ramifications. Now remember, chapter 3 records the origin of human sin. But sin existed beforehand. We know from other scriptures an angelic revolt erupted in heaven. Lucifer Or Satan let pride fill his heart. He tried to steal glory from God. A third of the angels joined in his rebellion. Legend had it that 
Lucifer caught wind of God's plan to create humans from the dust and to assign the angels our valet service. Can you imagine? This was an assault on Satan's pride. He would never cater to the whims of these little dust mites. So to avoid the humiliation, Satan tried to stop God's plan. And last week, we documented from Scripture the war over creation. But the battle continues. The devil couldn't stop God's creation, so now he tries to spoil it. This cosmic revolt spills out of the halls of heaven onto the earth, and Satan appears in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. And Satan's strategy was along two lines. He tempted Eve to doubt God's word. Then he tempted her to doubt God's love. It's interesting, the New Testament tells us twice that Eve was deceived. You know, women are more verbal than men generally. They like conversation. But Eve spoke to the wrong person. She went toe-to-toe with a skilled manipulator. And once you start negotiating with Satan, you're as good as trapped. Eve bites, Adam follows, and the rest is history. Suffice it to say, the original sin wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Eve wanted to be like God, but like God apart from God, not under God. She lusted for wisdom, but not God's wisdom, for an autonomous wisdom. The end of verse 6 tells us, Eve also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned willfully. And the instant his teeth pierced the skin of that fruit, the universe was never the same. In Genesis 2 verse 17, God had warned Adam that if he ate the forbidden fruit, he would surely die. And die he did. In that moment, death entered the human sphere. Spiritually, the man and the woman died instantly. Sin causes a breach between them and God. Something died inside of Adam the moment he sinned. The warmth of God's spirit suddenly was replaced by a coldness, an alienation, an emptiness, a selfishness. They died spiritually that day, but physically they also began to die. It culminated under a tombstone, but it began when Adam sinned. At that moment, his body started a slow deterioration, entropy, or we call it aging or decay, now takes its toll on us all. Not only did entropy invade humanity, it impacted the whole universe. Romans 8 verse 20 reads, The creation was subjected to futility. Randomness invaded an orderly creation. Sin marred God's perfect world. Malfunctions now became commonplace. Nature spun out of control. The Hebrews have a word that describes the perfect state of God's original creation. Shalom. Or peace. When Jesus returns, he promises to restore this shalom. This is why he's called the Prince of Shalom. Or the Prince of Peace. But the fall of man, man's sin, shattered shalom. Before the fall, all of nature was synced up with God. In harmony with God. 
Sin is now the bug in the program, the computer virus on the hard drive that now keeps us out of sync. In essence, Mother Nature no longer cooperated with God the Father. After man's sin, the gentle rain that waters your yard can also cause a city to flood. The light breeze that raises a kite into the air in a fallen world can rip the roof and siding off your house. Because of man's sin, Mother Nature developed a severe case of PMS. Sin has defiled God's perfect world. The world that we live in is no longer as God intended. When a tornado rips apart a street or a cell mutates into a cancer or a car slides over a guardrail, don't blame it on God. It was man who rejected God's warning and struck out on his own. We wanted autonomy from God, an autonomous wisdom. Man thought he could shape a better world. The havoc we deal with today is the result of living out that insanity. The immediate effect of sin showed up first in the man and woman. As soon as they bit the fruit, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Sin brought about self-awareness. See, prior to their sin, Adam and Eve were God-centered and others-centered. Now they become self-centered. Sin makes life all about me. Eve gained her enlightenment, all right. Her eyes were open, but the knowledge she gained now shattered her innocence. Now independent from God, she felt inadequate and ashamed and alone. This once graceful and beautiful lady was now a bag of insecurities. Wiser was God's wisdom. In verse 7, Adam and Eve tried to remedy their situation. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Instead of admitting their sin and running to God and throwing themselves on His mercies, they tried to hide. Adam and Eve launched the first cover-up. They sew together fig leaves and they make green leafy speedos for themselves. It was the original fruit of the looms. I've heard the clever saying, after she sinned, Eve became the only woman in history to say, I haven't got a thing to wear and it'd actually be true. Adam and Eve tried to cover their selfishness and rid themselves of their insecurities But the plan backfired. I've heard that fig leaves are extremely itchy, which makes their effort, which means that their effort made them more self-obsessed rather than less. In fact, you could say the rest of human history is all about fig leaves. Everything that man does from this point forward is a way to absolve his guilt, shore up his self-doubts, feel good about himself again. It's all about sewing together fig leaves to cover your nakedness. From here on, man will polish his vanity and stroke his ego and pursue his ambitions and show off his accomplishments as a form of glorified fig leaves. Did you know that even religion is a form of fig leaves? Good works and charitable deeds and sacred rituals and self-righteousness. What is it? 
It's man's attempt to cover his inadequacy. Religion is our invention. We discover God's solution to all of this was a covenant. Verse 8 is so sad. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. (coughs) This would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Here's the president and the first lady of creation hiding in the bushes, scratching like crazy underneath those fig leaves. I saw a cartoon once. It's autumn. The leaves are falling. And Eve is scolding Adam. Will you please pick up your clothes? Wow, has life changed for Adam. The old boy goes from hanging with a naked babe to getting nagged by the same woman to pick up his clothes. We're also told, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now please understand, this isn't the voice of an angry mobster banging on your door, seeking revenge. Where are you? I'm going to get you. This isn't the Godfather. This is God the Father. To read God's question correctly, accurately, you have to read it like a heartbroken dad seeking his wayward child. Where are you? I love you. Please come home. God calls lovingly. But men, I want you to notice who God calls out here. Though Eve sinned first, God wants to talk to the man. Adam, where are you? God will hold the, Adam, the man, Adam, responsible. Just goes to prove the buck stops with the buck. You know, every man wants to be the head of his house, be crowned the king of his castle. But men... A serious responsibility comes with that authority and that honor. Too many men are like Adam. Notice, where is Adam when Eve bites the fruit? Verse 6 tells us, her husband with her. Eve is under attack. The satanic deception is on. And Adam is an apathetic bystander. He does nada. Adam fails to lead and protect his wife. He never intervenes in the conversation between Eve and Satan. And we're still paying for it even today. And this is the sin of scores and scores of so-called men, even Christian men. Here is today's greatest social problem. Spiritually uninvolved men are failing their families. Oh, these men pay their mortgage and they buy the groceries, but they leave spiritual leadership to their wives. This was Adam's error. And guys, it brought down the entire human family. Trust me, it'll have a negative effect on yours. Here's what happened to the first marriage. The man failed to lead. The woman usurped his authority and Satan stepped in to wreak havoc. And the same scenario has played out countless times since. Some Christian men think just because they're moral guys... They don't get drunk or use drugs or cheat on their wives. They must be pleasing to God, but not hardly. A father and a husband needs to be aware of what's going on spiritually in his family. Men, rise up and be your family's spiritual leader, not an apathetic Adam. 
And notice Adam's excuses. Verse 10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Notice Adam's first response to the sin in his life was to hide. Then he hurls. He plays the blame game. Adam says to God, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Adam is so arrogant, he not only blames his sin on Eve, he also blames God for Eve. He says to God, the woman whom you gave me. In other words, my sin is your fault, God, for giving me this unruly woman. You know, I'm ashamed to say it, but there have been times when I've done the same. I try to hide my sin, cover it up. and When that doesn't work, I cast blame. I hurl. I've lost my cool and blamed it on my wife. It's tragic when you blame your sin on someone else. Oh, you make me so mad. Hey, what a wife does is never an excuse for a husband's temper. God holds the man responsible. A leader doesn't make excuses. Well, the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice Eve blames the snake. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. Eve uses the old Flip Wilson line that used to get so many laughs. The comedian would say, the devil made me do it. But God doesn't laugh at Eve or us. We've all sinned. And the first step to overcoming our sin is to stop blaming it on our spouse or our kids or the boss or our church or our economy or the devil. God, in His grace, wants to forgive us, but we have to come out of the bushes, stop hiding and stop hurling, and own what we've done. Notice what happens next. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the snake, and the snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. First God curses the snake. From now on, he's destined for belly flops. The snake will now slither. Here's the origin of the expression, bite the dust. God, God says, and I will put enmity between you And the woman, and this is the part of verse 15 that's easiest to interpret. Because most women are definitely afraid of most snakes. There is a natural hostility between snakes and women. But God will also put enmity or hostility between your, the serpent's seed, and her, the woman's seed. Now, it's interesting, the seed or sperm of the woman is a bizarre term. Nowhere does the seed belong to the woman. I believe this verse speaks of a unique, supernatural verse. It ultimately points to Jesus' virgin birth. Notice the next line, chapter 3, verse 15. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here God makes another covenant. The heavenly father initiates a means of restoring order to this fallen world. And of redeeming sinful man back into a relationship with himself. Genesis 3 verse 15 is one of the most strategic verses in all the Bible. It's known as the Proto-Evangelicum, or the initial gospel. It's the first mention of the Christian gospel. See, when Adam sinned, he effectively gave Satan sway over God's creation. But the woman's seed will strip Satan of the authority that he stole from Adam. And in the war with Satan, a promised champion will deliver the knockout blow. This phrase, the seed of the woman, ultimately points to Jesus, the virgin birth, the virgin-born Son of God. On the cross, Jesus was bruised by Satan. The cross, on the cross, Satan bruised Jesus' heel. It was serious, but it was a non-fatal blow. It was a heel bruise. Yet at the same time on the cross, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. Satan's head, or stripped him of his authority. The devil now has no power over the believer in Jesus. Like the serpent, the devil has also bit the dust. It's intriguing why Jesus had to be born of the seed of the woman. Romans 5 verse 12 tells us, Through one man sin entered the world. It's important to know that the Bible teaches us that everyone born of Adam inherits Adam's sin. In Psalm 51 verse 5, David perhaps says it best, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. See, we were all born with a sinful, Adamic nature. Our innate tendency is to rebel against God, to go our own way. Our internal compass points to I, not God. There's an old rock and roll song, song sung by George Thurgood and the Destroyers. He says this, On the day I was born, the nurses gathered round, and they gazed in wide wonder at the joy they had found. The head nurse spoke up, and she said, Leave this one alone. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone. And every human being born to Adam is bad to the bone. Here's the point. Through Adam, sin gets passed down. Sin is a trait inherited from the dad, not the mom. This is why Jesus is called the seed of the woman. He had to be born of a virgin. And since he was virgin born, Jesus was born sinless. He bypassed the sin of Adam. Thus, Jesus could die in our place for our sin. You could say Jesus was good to the bone. Romans 5 verse 19 reads, As by one man's obedient, disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. See, we inherit our sin from Adam so that we can inherit a right standing with God in Christ. In Adam we're born into sin. In Jesus we're born again unto righteousness. You know, I've talked to people who resent this notion of mankind's original sin. People will say, why should I suffer for someone else's sin? Why should I suffer for Adam's sin? Why can't I decide my own fate? Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) 
I doubt if any of us would do any better than Adam and Eve. They were perfect, remember. We would have sinned quicker than they did. And here's the catch. If your own sin condemns you, then your own righteousness has to save you. And since none of us can produce our own righteousness and save ourselves, God in his infinite wisdom condemned us in Adam so that he could save us in Christ. In verse 16, the consequences of Adam's sin reach deep into their lives. God judges the woman and her role in mankind's revolt. He assigns a punishment to Eve. He says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Mom, just imagine what could have been. Apparently God's original design called for pain-free contractions. No pain, all gain. Sadly, that ended with the first delivery. Eve's sin brought labor pains. Again, a wrench was thrown into the gears of family and human reproduction. Here is the source of infertility and miscarriages and C-sections. It was the sin of the man and the woman in the fall that resulted. But the woman's sentence was twofold. God also tells Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Eve is sentenced to labor pains and also to laboring with a pain. Realize God's order for the home predated the fall. The Edenic covenant made the husband leader in his home. The wife was to follow. But now Eve's husband is a sinner. She's suddenly saddled with the tough task of submitting to an imperfect authority. She has to submit the course of her life to a mistake-prone leader. And from here on, family life will get much more complicated. A power struggle ensues. The woman desires the intimacy of marriage, but since she's a, he, her husband is a sinner, she can no longer trust him. Rather than follow him, she employs ways to try to control him. And of course, this discourages the man from stepping up to lead. We see this repeated over and over and over again. This causes a vicious, heartbreaking cycle in a marriage. Oh, realize the issues plaguing your marriage, as do the solutions, trace all the way back to Eden. And in verse 17, God judges the man. He says to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, Of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb, the herb of the field. Notice Adam's work now changes. Before the fall, whenever Adam got hungry, all he had to do was pick a delicious globe of fruit off the nearest tree. But after mankind's fall, Adam had to plant and grow food out in the fields. See, prior to the curse, food and work were completely unrelated. Food had nothing to do with a paycheck. God provided all the food that the man and woman needed. 
Adam worked for the fun of it. This changed at the fall. Since Adam chose independence from God, he could start by growing his own food. And while he was tilling the ground, he was going to encounter serious obstacles, thorns and thistles. Suddenly work becomes work. It goes from a breeze to a burden. Verse 19 tells us, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Before man's sin, work was no sweat, but no more. From now on, man will never get out of his job a reward equal to what he puts into it. Man is taken from the dirt, and he works himself back into the ground, from dust to dust. See, every time a man clocks in, he leaves a little something of himself behind on that job. He does it day after day after day after day until finally he's literally worked himself to death. And this is the plight of every man. In his book, Working, author Studs Terkel, he writes of the thorns and thistles we all face. He says, work is about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It's about ulcers as well as accidents. Shouting matches as well as fistfights. Above all, it's about daily humiliations. To just survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded. It is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread. For recognition as well as cash. For wonder rather than apathy. For a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Wow, it's true. Turkle's description of work as a Monday through Friday sort of dying is right out of Genesis chapter 3. So you never get out of it, all that you put into it. You know, some men have never understood this. That's why they bounce from job to job to job their whole adult life. They never settle down vocationally. They're always looking for that elusive, perfect job. They've yet to realize that job doesn't exist. We've had people join our church staff and expect a bed of roses. They don't realize that every occupation, every corporation has its thorns and thistles. All careers have obstacles that will aggravate and irritate. Well, the curse of the Adamic covenant sees to it that women have pain in labor and that men labor in pain. You know, it's interesting when a mother chooses to work outside of her home, and I understand that's not always a choice. Often she has to help to provide. But when she does, she gets double the trouble. She bears the family curse intended for her, but also the work curse meant for the man. Ironically, our modern society has tried to revamp family life to liberate women. But from a biblical perspective, all it's done is burden them down further. Some mothers are convinced her kids are not enough. She needs a career to be fulfilled. In reality, all she's getting is double curse. It is amazing, though, how the ancient covenant God made with Adam so thoroughly shapes our lives today. From nature to home life to work life, 
The curse God put on man's original sin shows up every day in a million ways. When your car breaks down, when your child throws up, when you get in a fight with your spouse, when their thorns and thistles and labor pains make life harder, let it remind you that this world is not as it was meant to be. It's not as it was intended. This was one of the two purposes of the covenant God made with Adam. It was a perpetual reminder of the fall of man, of sin and its curse. But it also had a positive component. For this covenant provided a hope for salvation and a picture of how that salvation would be accomplished. I like verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The name Eve means life giver. Adam took very seriously God's promise to Eve that through her seed salvation would come. That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Sin came by Eve, but Adam believes that life will also come by Eve as well. Well, finally, verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. God didn't like their fig leaves, so he dressed them in his and her leather jackets. How about that? Of course, animal skins necessitate the death of an animal, a sacrifice. Remember, God told Adam, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. For sin to be forgiven, a price has to be paid. Blood has to be sacrificed. And thus to cover Adam and Eve, God offered an animal. Here's how God intends to remove our guilt and alleviate our fears and resolve our insecurities and restore our willingness to trust in Him. It's through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is ultimately the one who's going to cover us with His righteousness. On the cross, He takes away our nakedness and our insecurities and our shame. All that came upon Adam and Eve when they sinned. In Christ, we become accepted. But it all happens through covenants. Through God's covenants. It began in the garden with Adam. But there are more covenants yet to come. There's more to the story. So stay tuned.